All right, Grove. We are in our last week in this series in the Lord's Prayer. And each week what we've been doing is we've been pulling out a line of this prayer, the Lord's Prayer. And well, let, let me tell let me do this. Let me tell you this. The deepest and most desperate desire of the human heart is to be to meet with the divine. And this prayer tells us how to get there. And each week in this prayer, we're pulling out a line and we're looking at it. And each week, what's been happening is we've been asking God to do something, to reveal his glory, to bring his kingdom, to bring his will, to bring heaven down to earth, to provide for us and to forgive us. And today we ask him to stop something from happening, to stop evil from overtaking us. And today we're going to see that life is a battle. And we're going to see where evil comes from. We're going to see where it is now. And we're going to look at what temptation is. And we're going to, we're going to ask this question, is there any hope for us in this prison of sin that we keep finding ourselves in? The shame that we feel inside because of this, this, this thing inside of us that's prone to run from God. We're going to ask if there's any hope. We're going to be in Matthew 6, verses 9 through 13 the Lord's Prayer, and afterwards there'll be a Q&A, so make sure you get your question in as we go. And here's the Lord's Prayer. Jesus said, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. First point is that life is a battle. There is not one day and one moment and one decision in your life that is not a battle being fought over good and over evil. And every single decision you make is a path towards good or towards evil, and it leads you further down one path or the other. And it brings goodness or evil into the world. There is a war happening absolutely all the time. And the reality is we don't realize the war is happening. And if you don't know that there's a war and a battle going on, then you've already lost. I just finished this biography on Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He is a pastor, theologian, a spy who was martyred for an attempted plot to assassinate Hitler. And... I'm no scholar on Hitler, but from this book, here is what I observed about this man, Hitler. From the beginning, he was at war. Though his war was cunning, he was sly about it, and he was taking baby steps until eventually he had so much power that he could destroy anyone that stood in his way. And there was loyal Germans who were supporting him. There were Christian churches supporting this man. Had German Christians had realized that they were at war this whole time with this evil man, they would have stopped this from happening and there wouldn't have been the Holocaust. There's a war happening in your life and if you don't realize it, then you're going to be trapped. You're going to become imprisoned in this. Like the, the guns are sounding. The bombs are coming down and there is a warship that's parked right outside their heart and your soul that is doing battle with you. And if you don't realize that it's happening, then you begin to pretend like you're in Eden. But we're not in Eden anymore. We've, we've, we've left. We've lost it. 
And as soon as we stepped outside of Eden into the wilderness, the war began. And we've got to learn to live like we are in this war. Now, if, well, there's a, there's a personality profile called the Big Five. And one of the character traits is neuroticism. So if you're a neurotic person, it means that you see threats first before everybody else. And sometimes you see threats that aren't actually there because you're just so heightened and aware that there are threats all around you. So if you are this type, you're probably, like a bunch of red flags are going off because I just told you that there's a war happening around you and you can't even see it. And if there is a war happening around us all the time, then the question is, how are we supposed to have joy and have peace? Because the Bible, it doesn't just tell us and promise us we can have joy and peace. It commands us to have joy and peace. So how in the world are you supposed to find joy and peace in a world that's at war? And while you are at this war? And the answer is because you understand that there is one who has come who is standing beside you. And he's fighting with you and he is fighting for you. And he is against all evil that comes at you. And his name is Christ. And if you know that he's there for you, you then know that he can be your peace and he can be your joy. And so what you then find is that this battle over your heart and your mind and your soul is a battle for your mind and heart and soul to have peace and to have joy while you are in a world that is at war. And it's available to you. It's there in him. And so the war is over the joy and peace and love that's in your heart. And so if we are in this battle, then we need to ask, where did this evil come from? This is our second point. First question you should ask is, is evil real? And the answer is, no, it's not. But the other answer is, it absolutely is. And you should be terrified of it. And what I mean by that is that evil is not part of creation. Evil is not part of the created order. Evil happens when something good becomes bent. It becomes distorted. It becomes broken. And then when that thing that has been bent, distorted, and broken acts, it does things that we call sinful. It, it, it's, a, it's the product of a fallen world of something that's been distorted and acting in distorted ways. Philosophers today are trying to tell us that we shouldn't say that people are doing things that are evil or sinful. And what they're getting at is they're telling us, hey, there are experiences that all of us go through. And in those experiences, we've been wounded, we have been broken, and we have been bent. So it's not our fault that we're the way that we are. It's because something has been done to us, but we can't call it evil. It's just a product of experience. And it's true. Like Things have happened to you that have broken you wounded you, harmed you. And it's making you act in such a way to do things that are harmful for yourself and harmful for others. But here's the problem if you take away the idea of evil. If there is no such thing as evil, then hope is gone. And a reason I say that is because if there's no such thing as evil, then this is as good as it gets. It doesn't get any better. This is just life. It doesn't get better than this. It doesn't get worse than this. It's just the way it is because there's not good. There's not evil. It's just is. But if there is evil, then we have hope because it means we have something to fight against. And it means that God has something to fight against and he can come in and he can get involved. And then we have hope. There's an, there's an atheist writer. His name is Andrew Del Banco. And he wrote this book called The Death of Satan. 
And in it, he makes the argument. Now, this is an atheist saying this. He says, we have a problem today because we have removed the word evil. And because we've removed this word, we don't know what to do when evil comes at us. We don't know what to call it, and we don't know what to do about it because it's not part of our vocabulary anymore. So we have to deal with the fact that there is evil, and if there is evil, then we have hope because it means we can do something. In a war, if you can't acknowledge that you're fighting against something, then you lose. A common war tactic is to know your enemy. Now, how cunning of evil to make you think it doesn't exist. If you don't believe in it, well, then it's got you. You can't fight a shadow. You can't fight a ghost. And so it stabs you in the back and it bites you and you're done. So where then, this is our third point, where then is this evil? What I have found is that there are four types of people who point to different places where evil is coming from. The first type of person says the evil is out there in the world. They see, say things like, well, you know, with the world that the way that it is today, they'll see problems in the political sphere. They'll see problems out in the world. They'll see problems that are happening out there. It's our culture. The second type of person says evil's in here. Um, I keep being prone to do things that I know I shouldn't do and I can't stop myself. And these types of people feel a lot of guilt and shame in their life and they don't know what to do with it. The third type of person is the one who says evil is unseen. We see this in Ephesians 6. It says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places so evil is unseen and then the fourth type of person says evil is in all three of those places in genesis 4 sin is described as this wild jungle cat that's ready to pounce on you and so there's a warning watch out for this jungle cat that's ready to pounce on you now if there's only one jungle cat coming from one place well then maybe you stand a chance but if there's three jungle cats coming from what the Bible says, the world, the flesh, and the devil, the three places out there, in here, and unseen. Well, I mean, how are you going to escape three jungle cats? It's going to get you. And so this brings us to our next point. What is temptation? How are you going to get away from this cat that's after you? And when we think of temptation, you need to know that temptation does not come from God. God will not tempt you. However, he will lead you into situations and circumstances where you are tempted. When Jesus, but God will not tempt you. When Jesus is led out into the wilderness, it was the spirit of God that led him to the wilderness to be tempted, but it was not the spirit that tempted him. It was Satan that was tempting him. God will not tempt you, but you are led to places of temptation, which means temptation will come. And then in the book of James, this is kind of blows your mind a little bit. James says, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. Now, temptation is part of those trials. So count it joy when you meet temptations of various kinds. And you say, how in the world am I supposed to think of temptation as something that I should take joy in? And the answer is because temptation will grow you if you always go to the right place. If you're tempted and you're wise, 
you realize this is too much for me. I can't handle this on my own. I need somewhere to go for help. And if you go running to Christ, then you have just run to the one who is called the root while we're the branches, which means you've gone to your source of growth. So if temptation comes and you run to Christ, you're going to grow. If temptation comes and you fail and you sin, and then you go to Christ for grace, you're in the arms of Christ again, which means you're back at the root that gives you growth in your life. So either way, whether you're tempted or whether you, and, and you go to Christ and don't sin or you're tempted and you do sin and go to him for grace, you win because Christ wins all the time. This is, this is the genius of grace. You will, you will always grow, whether you're tempted and you lose or you're tempted in your win because you have Christ and he's always enough. All right, that's temptation. Now, let's look at sin. What is sin? Some people say sin is separation from God, but that's not true. Separation from God is the result of sin. Sin is described in the Bible as three ways. Unbelief, lawlessness, and idolatry. Unbelief, lawlessness, and idolatry. You could also call idolatry a disordered love. This is what Augustine does. And a disordered love is when you order something wrong as far as the order that which you love something. And so if you love an animal more than a person, that's a disordered love. And how do you order your loves? Well, whatever is your highest love will tell you how to order the rest. Whatever you love most in this world, you give the control center of your heart to it, and it tells you what to love and how to love. And so when we think of temptation, we think of temptation as being lured by the three things, the, the world, the flesh, and the devil. We're lured by the world outside. We're lured by something in us called the flesh. And we're, we're lured by these, unspiritual, these spiritual forces. And we're lured into what? These three evils or sins. Unbelief, lawlessness, and idolatry. So let's look at the three of these. First, Unbelief. Every single sin has unbelief attached to it. Every time you sin, unbelief is there. And every time you have faith, you're doing something that is good. And every time that you doubt, when you begin to doubt, it's like that's the start, starting line. And then the finish line is unbelief. And there's different versions of this finish line. But every time you sin, there's an unbelief problem there. So the question is, how do we get off of this road of doubt? You have to go on a spiritual adventure with your friends. And you go on the spiritual adventure and you begin to engage in these Christian practices where you're reading the Bible together and you're praying together. And you're engaging this way with truth and with love. Seeking truth with love. And as you do this, you'll begin to be pulled out of the doubt that is plaguing you. You're not meant to do this on your own. I've, I've never ever seen anyone not grow that is here on Sunday mornings, like committed, and not just showing up, but seeking God here together among us fellow travelers. Second, they're engaged in some type of Christian friendship that's a serious Christian friendship like, hey, we're going to meet together on a weekly basis. This is what we do in our discipleship groups. And then third, this person is engaged in bringing heaven to earth. 
And when you're engaged in bringing heaven to earth and something good happens, like you win a battle, you go running back on Sunday morning and you're there not just to be nourished, but you're there to celebrate as well. Now you do all of these things, you're likely gonna have growth in your life. But you've got to be vulnerable with people. You've gotta get connected to people. So I made a mistake, probably I think four years ago. Um, a year into starting the Grove, my oldest son got diagnosed with autoimmune encephalitis. And it's a horrible disease and I hate it and it has wrecked our family. And for the first year through it all, my faith was good, it was solid. And I was relying on God all the way through it, but I did something wrong. I, I put this date in my mind. I said, after one year, God's gonna heal him. So one year came and one year went and it didn't happen and I was so mad at God. And while I'm mad at God, I'm sitting in hospitals for up to four days and I'm in there in this cold hospital trying to warm my heart as I'm trying to write a sermon to give some hope here on a Sunday morning. And it was really this battle within of finding hope while I'm mad at God. And, and there's this line in the third movie of The Lord of the Rings where Aragon says, I give them, he's this like kingly heroic figure and he says, I give them hope when I have none. And I was like, that's it. That's what I'm trying to do. And what would happen is throughout the week, I'd be trying to get hope stirred up in me. And it was like God almost every Sunday came through and gave me the hope that I needed. But then Monday morning came and it was like hope got stripped from me and it was gone. And what I needed to do was tell all of you what was happening to me. But I didn't know how to do that. I didn't know how to be vulnerable with you and say, hey, I'm going to help us go running to the God of hope when I was mad at the God of hope. And I should have just talked with you about it, but I didn't know how to do that. And also, like, people don't know what to do. Like, if you're like, well, you're supposed to be the one who's taking me to God, but you're mad at God, so how can you take me to him? And so I should have just said it, but I didn't know how to do that. And we all, we don't really know how to be vulnerable with each other and say, like, here is where I'm at. And we need to learn how to do that or else doubt will turn into unbelief and it will grab us and pull us in. So the second one is lawlessness. This is the second place, second way we sin. Lawlessness is our rebellion. And if you don't want to be lured in to sin, you have to understand how bad you really are. Because we are, we're most uh, vulnerable to sin when we think, I'm good, I got this. But if we will realize that we're prone to sin, we're prone to wander, then we'll guard ourselves. And, and, and part of this is like, here's the problem that we have. We all think we're the only ones who really struggle with sin. We all think we're the only one who really doesn't have it all together. And I'll tell you why that's a problem. Because each and every one of us, we come in here, we walk through this life, and man, we try to really look good because we're insecure. And so we try to cover up our sin as opposed to letting God cover our sin, where then we could be honest about it, but, you know, it's terrifying. And so we cover it up. And so every single person here has these deep insecurities about their sin, but they're looking at everybody else here thinking that they've got it all together. And if someone would just be bold enough and say, hey, I'm a sinner, then what it's going to mean is everyone's going to say, oh, okay, good. Me too. I'm not alone in this. We all are prone 
to covet, to lust, to overeating, to drunkenness. We all are prone to lie, cheating, and stealing. We are all prone to hatred, envy, and jealousy, and it's in all of us. And all it takes is the breeze of temptation to tip you right over into it, and you're caught in this prison, and it does not feel like you can get out. This war is talked about in Proverbs 3. It says you're walking down this road, and on one side of the road is Lady Wisdom, and she has a house, and she's inviting you into it. On the other side of the road is Lady Folly, and she has a house, and she's inviting you into it. And it says the aromas of the house of Lady Folly bring you in and draw you in the aromas of hospitality, and as soon as you get in, you're caught, and you're imprisoned, and you're done for. It's called a house of death, but it looked like a house of life. It looked like it was going to offer you something, only all it did was offer you a death. And then it says we're caught and we're stuck. We can't get out. And if you don't know you're in a war, you're going to walk right in. The third is idolatry or disordered love. Now, I need you to hear this. There is a war being fought over your love. And I want to tell you who's fighting this war. Your spouse or your significant other, your lover. When they are losing their battle, do you know what they want you from you? They want you to make them the God of their life. Your children want you to make them the God of their life. Your workplace wants you to make it its God and to sacrifice your family for it. And it's easy to fall into this even in the church. Because here's what happens in the church. This happens to pastors all the time, but it's not just to pastors. It's anybody in a leadership position. Because here's what happens if you're in leadership. You start beginning to feel like if you're leading a discipleship group, this can happen to you. You start feeling like you have a responsibility, which you do. And you start feeling like this is purposeful and meaningful, and it is. And then you start, because you're working so hard, you start getting some praise from people. And you go, ooh, I like this. And then it starts validating you. And you start feeling valued. And you start feeling more worthy. And you like it more. And you're starting to get all of your validation from people instead of from God. And then what you begin to do is you set up a little throne for yourself to sit on. And what you're doing is you're trying to absorb praise from others. And it's like you just want to be worshipped now. You could do this in your workplace. You could do this anywhere where there's leadership offered. And so you take the church and you use it for your own glory. And how perverted is that? But it happens everywhere. Because we just need it. We just want it. Evil seduces you in. In the book of James, he compares it to this. He says, temptation is like this bait that's been thrown out, and it's being dangled in front of you, and, and it's seducing you, it's, it's luring you in, it's calling you to itself, and it starts dancing around you, and it starts driving you frantic, and you can't help it anymore, and you snatch it. And as soon as you do, you're hooked, you're reeled in, and you're stuck in this house of death. And likely, up until this point, you were really hoping that I had some tools or some strategies to get you out of temptation and out of sin. And here's what I'm here to tell you. There is nothing that will save you from sin. 
Nothing that you can do. There's no process, there's no strategy, and there's no pep talk. There's just a person. And every strategy is useless unless it gets you to Christ. Every pep talk is meaningless unless it gets you to him. And every process is a waste of your time unless it leads you to your Savior. This is our last point. Christmas time is about hope. And what we find in Christmas is a king who has been born into a den of sinners, into a house of robbers, into uh, a company of rebels. And he came into this house of death to lead us out and deliver us. How does he do it? Well, it's all in the prayer. This is the genius of this prayer. It's all connected to each other. So you take what we're praying today, and you look all the way back in the beginning, and it says, hallowed be your name, which means show the fullness, God, of who you are. Show the fullness of your glory, the fullness of your name. Let it be known here among us right now in this moment. And I'm going to tell you, when the glory of God is seen and you really have this experience of him, it will pierce the sin in your heart. Because when you're surrounded by the glory of God, what it means is you're surrounded by the thing that will give you, take you up into this place of ecstasy. It will give you pleasure that this world has not, does not have to offer you. And what it will do is it will pull you out of the death that you were in, under, out of this house that had hold of you. And then this prayer, this is your kingdom come. Well, what that means is that there is a whole new kingdom that has come when Christ the King has come. And what that means is that there's a whole battle now being fought, good over evil, and his kingdom has come to fight for you and against everything that's against you. He's going to win the war. And then we say, your will be done. And when we pray this prayer, part of it's like this prayer is like, God, let yourself be faithful to the promise that you've made to us. And the promise is that he's going to deliver us. And when Jesus is there in the garden of, of um, Gethsemane, and he's praying, he says, Father, let this cup pass from me. The cup is the cross. Let this cup pass from me, but your will be done. And so he goes to the cross, and by going to the cross, he wins the war for us. The war has been fought, and the war has been won. How did that happen? Well, he entered into the house. And you know, the, the, the Lady Folly thought she won when Christ entered in. But he tricked the trickster, and he entered into death. And when Christ enters into death, the father calls him out. And when the father called him out, death was broken open. The chains of sin were let go and we were brought out with him, which means we have complete and absolute freedom while we are in the middle of this war. And what that means then is every time you sin, it's okay. And every time you don't sin, it's okay because it doesn't matter. The way he sees you and the way he loves you will not change no matter what you do or don't do. His love is relentless and it's after you and it's stronger than that jungle cat that's ready to pounce on you. It's a lion that roars, that runs any type of jungle cat away. I know a lion is kind of a jungle cat, but don't ruin the moment. And that is how you fight, with freedom. 
And it means something else, that when temptation comes, the same power that conquered the grave lives in you, so you have a way out. But if you don't, get out. And if you lose that battle, you go back and you remember, but Christ has won the war. And so I'm good. I'm free. And I'm going to live that way for the rest of my life here on this earth. Knowing I'm in a battle, but with joy and with peace, because my Savior is at my side. Let's pray. Father, we love you and praise you. You sent us Christ. Christ, we see you for what you've done for us, and uh, we bow down to you. We drop to our knees in thanks and praise, and we ask for your help. And we pray that you would teach us how to ask each other for help. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grove Church Message Podcast. Like us on your favorite podcast provider, follow our social media at the Grove Church Official, and check out our website, thegrovechurch.co.